Dear Father, Father, our lives are patterns. You know that, Father. You established the patterns of seasons and years and months and and so much regularity in the creation so that we could understand you are a God of order and a God of purpose. And our lives take on a pattern as a result. We see seasons come and go. We see holidays approaching and past. Our weeks have patterns. Our days have patterns, Father. And many of these things are for purposes that are good and and helpful to us, and we know that. But, Lord, in your word this morning, you're going to reveal to us that there are other patterns in our life that aren't so good. Patterns of sin. Patterns in which we repeat the mistakes of the past and We may regret the mistake. We may sense that we have gone astray. But, Father, we haven't made the changes that are required if we were to break out of the patterns. And Israel had such a pattern, Father, and you show us in your word that that pattern was so destructive that it caused whole generations of that nation to be enslaved by their enemies. And, Father, we know that in grace, as you've offered us that grace in Jesus Christ, we we are not enslaved to anyone anymore, Father, except to Christ himself. But we may enslave ourselves, as it were, by patterns. And I pray, Lord, that as we study Israel, that we won't think these things far off, distant, and past events, but we will consider, Lord, how you are speaking to us about our own patterns of life, our own sinful, repetitive patterns. And perhaps, Father, you would give us this morning the conviction and the courage necessary to break out of them so that we would escape the penalties that come with them and so we would please you so that we would be useful to you. And glorify your name. To be holy as our Father is holy. Let us see these things, Father, today with a heart that is desiring to obey. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. There is an old and very overused statement, so I'll preface my use of it by acknowledging that it is cliche. But there's an overused statement that says, The definition of insanity is doing the same thing over and over again, but expecting a different result. And I'm sure you've heard that a million times, right? You live by... Well, this sermon is for you. And to be honest, I'm not sure if that's a reasonable definition of insanity, but it is certainly an apt description of the nation of Israel during the time of Judges. We've reached chapter 10 in the book, about halfway through the chapters of the book, but we're about 250 years of the 300 years of this period of history. So we've, we've gone through the bulk of it. We're reaching near the end of it, in fact. And that cycle that you've heard me describe now over and over of the sin and disobedience that's been turning throughout this period, it's now going to turn again for the fifth time. And I think after so much of this experience of turning the cycle, I think it's appropriate that we take a day today to consider some of the contributing factors that are driving this cycle of sin in the nation of Israel. Because that's what the author in chapter 10 starts to do as well. We came out of chapter 9 with Gideon and the aftermath of his family's civil war. All that is behind us. Last week at the beginning of this chapter, we saw two new judges that followed in quick succession. One, Tola, who seemed to do everything right. He appears to have created a sound culture of obedience for the time that he ruled. But then that didn't last. Then we got the next judge in succession, Jair. He seems to repeat a lot of the same mistakes that we saw in Gideon's life. He has many wives, through them many children, and then the children appear to take positions of privilege and status among the people. So where are we going? Are we going downhill again? Verse 6, Samuel says, Then the sons of Israel again did evil in the sight of the Lord, served the Baals and the Ashtaroth, the gods of Aram, the gods of Sidon, the gods of Moab, the gods of the sons of Ammon, and the gods of the Philistines. And thus they forsook the Lord and did not serve him. 
there's nothing new here, right? Nothing really very surprising. We've seen this before. This is the thing of judges, right? In fact, we've reached the point, and maybe you're there with me now, in which there's almost this sense of it's impossible for them not to do this. That it's inevitable. Like a moth drawn to the flame, they can't stay out of idolatry, or so it would seem. So what is it about the Israelites? What is it about their situation that keeps leading them down this same path time and time again? Are they just dumber than us? You know, is that how we explain it? They're just more stubborn than we are. We wouldn't do this, would we? And remember, it's not the same people. We're talking about a generation doing wrong, a generation mostly seeming to do okay, and then another generation after that coming back to what was going on in their grandparents' day. We're talking about whole new groups of people repeating the mistakes of their forefathers and doing it, in fact, each time a little worse than the previous. How do we explain that? Simply put, Israel is succumbing to canonization. That is, they're coming under the influence of worldly, pagan cultures that surround them. And you remember how they came into the land. They came into Canaan, a land that was populated by Canaanites, and surrounded by Moabites and Ammonites and Philistines and Phoenicians and the like. And all of these cultures are pagan. And when Joshua brought them into the land, the Lord told Joshua and the people, you are to get rid of all of these people. Do not allow any of them to remain in the land. And the reason God said that they were to do that, not to seek friendship with them, not to enter into covenants with them and the like, is because he said, if you do that, if you live with them, if you let them stick around, they are going to tempt you into idolatry. They will cause you to follow after their gods. That's what God told them. And he repeated his advice throughout the scriptures He says this to to Joshua, but he says it later to Israel through other leaders. And friends, he's still saying it to us in the New Testament, by the way. This is not ancient advice. The Bible says we should not seek a strong relationship with the world. You can either have a stronger relationship with the world, or you can have a stronger relationship with the Lord, but you cannot do both at the same time. Because as James said in James 4, chapter 4, verse 4, You adulteresses, do you not know that friendship with the world is hostility toward God? And therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Or Paul, in 2 Corinthians, Paul says this, 2 Corinthians 6:14. Do not be bound together with unbelievers. For what partnership have righteousness and lawlessness? Or what fellowship has light with darkness? Or what harmony has Christ with Belial? Or what has a believer in common with an unbeliever? Or what agreement has the temple of God with idols? For we are the temple of the living God, just as God said. I will dwell in them and walk among them, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. Therefore, come out from their midst and be separate, says the Lord, and do not touch what is unclean, and I will welcome you. And I will be a father to you, and you shall be sons and daughters to me, says the Lord Almighty. We've heard these verses perhaps in the past. In general, the Bible presents this very simple and powerful rule of thumb. The Lord says, remain separate from the world. Paul's command in the New Testament says that we are to live this way. And he even quotes from the Old Testament to the word given to Israel, emphasizing this has always been the way God has expected his people to behave. Always we are to be separate from the world. God dwells among us, so he says don't try to live like those who do not have the Lord. Be separate, be distinct, without partnership. Why? Why has this always been a precept? Why has this always been a requirement of God's people? That you not be closely associated 
with the world. It's not because God wants us to somehow shun the world or seek to distance ourselves from them, because after all, we know we have a mission to pursue them, right? We know we have to reach the world for Christ. The issue is when you seek harmony with their values, you don't bring them up. They pull you down. That's the message of Scripture. Our godliness does not, quote, rub off on other people. We might like to think that's possible. Scripture stands to tell us that it's not. The truth is, their ungodliness will corrupt us over time. So you have to make some kind of connection with an unbeliever if you're going to reach them. But, friends, the connection you're trying to make with the unbelieving world is one that seeks to highlight our differences, not to find some unity. You can't win them over to your side if you identify with their side. There's nothing more to talk about at that point. You lose the distinction. You forfeit the difference. And in doing so, when you look just like them, they don't understand that you're offering anything new. That's the fundamental problem. So as you come to their side in a misguided attempt to introduce them to your side, you're actually leaving, quote, your side behind. That's why Jesus said in Matthew 5.13 to the church, He says, You are the salt of the earth, but if the salt has become tasteless, how can it be made salty again? It's no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled underfoot by men. You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor does anyone light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on the lampstand. And it gives light to all who are in the house. Let your light shine before men in such a way that they may see your good works and glorify your Father who is in heaven. So, yeah, we impact the world, but we do it by our distinction. That is, as Jesus calls it, our saltiness. But if you become like the world, Jesus says, you lose your influence, you no longer have that distinction. And friends, don't fool yourselves, the enemy knows this. The enemy knows this very well. He knows it now, and he knew it in Israel's day. If he can tempt you or I to identify with the world's values over the word of God, then he has effectively neutralized us in the spiritual battlefield. He causes the world, for example, to think that crude language is good, or to think that explicit music is worth listening to, or sexual immorality is cool and and acceptable today. That's how the world thinks. What do you say? The world celebrates depravity and brutality and ego and greed, but what do we practice? Is it not love and kindness and charity, the contrast? The world worships science and reason and mysticism and paganism, but we testify to Christ. That's the distinction we're in the world to offer. You don't condemn the world for how they view it. You don't judge them over those differences. But neither do you want to identify with them either. It's that contrast in our faith that gives us an opportunity to reach them because we have a different message. That's been the way God has always intended His people to be. Israel was to be a light among the nations in their day. We are to be a light among the world in our day. But when we forfeit that distinction, we are avoiding the opportunity to do what God called us to do. When you prioritize pursuing the world over seeking the Lord, you are taking part in the idolatry of your age. If you find something about the world that you like and agree with and think is worth pursuing and your heart's affection turns to that thing to the exclusion of pleasing the Lord, then you are on the proverbial slippery slope toward idolatry. And this brings us back to Judges. That's where we are now in the time of Judges. To answer the question, why do they keep falling back into this same pattern? It's because generation after generation keeps finding something about the surrounding cultures that they're interested in, just enough that it pulls them in to God's enemies and makes them an enemy of God. So they would find they liked something about the Canaanite culture. Maybe they they like the Canaanite women, as you see at times in Scripture. And they get married with Canaanite women. 
taking them as wives. Or they sought the profit of trading goods and services with the peoples in these other nations. Or they formed alliances with these other nations. Or they were attracted to the excitement of living in some of these big cities, like Lot, when he moved into Sodom in his day. And every time they do these things, make covenants, take wives, get into businesses, get into arrangements, the kind of things Paul talks about in Second Corinthians and says, why are we making partnerships with somebody we have nothing in common with? Every time they did this, they started worshiping the gods of their neighbors. Maybe not the first day, maybe not the first week, but it happens. In verse 6, Samuel says, You now have the people of Israel worshiping the Canaanite gods of Baal and Ashtaroth. Now we've heard that before, that's not new. But beyond that, he says they're now worshiping the gods of Syria, that's Aram, Phoenicia, Moab, Ammon, and the Philistines. Now that's a new low for the people of Israel in the book of Judges. They've moved away from merely adopting Canaanite gods. They have now gone outside their borders and they're pulling in gods from all the surrounding nations into their pantheon. And if you count them here, Israel has adopted seven false gods just as the Lord promised that they would. What does our list of false gods look like? Well, ask yourself, what does the world worship today? For the most part, I think the modern world has set aside bowing down to wooden figurines. That still happens, certainly, in parts of the world. But in our world, our culture, this part of the globe, what is it we are watching the world worship? What do they hold in high esteem? What do they make sacrifices in order to obtain and please? Aren't the gods of today wealth and physical beauty and career and sports and hobbies, even their own children or pets, right? I mean, the way that they will, they will do anything and everything to make those things in their life either accessible to them or hold them up in esteem. Temporal things, things that cannot substitute for the living God, things they've come to appreciate. Now, where are we in these things? Have we come to appreciate these things as well to some degree? Perhaps because we're living in and around people who tell us that these things matter? These things are the things that make life worth living for these folks around us? Have we made any compromise in those areas? What are we sacrificing in terms of heavenly treasure in order to obtain these worldly treasures? In the cycle of Judges, we know the Lord is not going to ignore the Israelites when they fall into these bad patterns, right? He's going to respond. He does it here again. But notice in the way He responds how He calls them out for this tendency to align with the world and how it leads them into this cycle of sin over and over again. Verses 7 through 9. He says, The anger of the Lord burned against Israel, and he sold them into the hands of the Philistines and into the hands of the sons of Ammon. They afflicted and crushed the sons of Israel that year. For 18 years they afflicted all the sons of Israel who were beyond the Jordan, in Gilead, in the land of the Amorites. The sons of Ammon crossed the Jordan to fight also against Judah, Benjamin, and the house of Ephraim, so that Israel was greatly distressed. So, as we've seen before, the Lord steps in to discipline them. That's not new. And in this case, he uses two different oppressors, one from the east, one from the west. The Philistines came from the west, the Ammonites come from the east. And for 18 years, the people are afflicted, it says, because of their sins. 18 is twice nine. Nine is the number in Scripture for judgment. God is doubling up, if you will, the judgment against Israel. And you can imagine this like a vice. Here's this thin strip of land in which Israel occupies, and you've got, you got enemies on the east and enemies on the west squeezing them from either side. 
putting them under the pressure and the distress that God intends so that they would know better their circumstances. And predictably, once he does this, what happens? Well, they cry out. Verse 10, Then the sons of Israel cried out to the Lord, saying, We have sinned against you, for indeed we have forsaken our God and served the Baals. You notice how quickly Samuel's running through this one, don't you? He's not spending any time on the details because we know what's coming. I think his emphasis in this chapter is on the causation, the factors driving the cycle. So the cycle turns now. They've had their time of oppression. Now the people cry out. They say they've sinned against the Lord. They ask for relief. Now you reach the second principle of the morning, the second factor. God's people are best served in their pursuit of godliness when God brings trial and persecution. James says it best. James 1, chapter 1, verse 2 through 4, he says, Consider it all joy, my brethren, when you encounter various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance. And let endurance have its perfect result, so that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. Trials are spiritual conditioning, spiritual exercises. Some trials come upon us because the Lord desires to grow our faith and strengthen us for a greater work, and these are not done as a punishment. They're merely done as a way of of drawing us deeper into a relationship with Him. But then there are times, friends, when the trials and the tribulations of life are the result of God's discipline upon the believer because of our sin and disobedience. But whether it's one or the other, in both cases, the goal that the Lord has is to work us to a place of spiritual improvement, of getting closer to Him and further away from our sin. And what a trial does is it exposes our weakness. It lets us see ourselves in a new way. We can see that we've been sinful in some respect, and we begin to recognize the circumstances that I'm in right now are the result of these choices I made, and I don't like this anymore, and I want to do something about it. And in that sense, a trial is a very healthy thing as God brings it upon the believer. It puts us back in a sense of dependence upon Him. But regret, friends, is not repentance. All of us feel regret. Some of us may be feeling it right now. But regret is not repentance. Judges 10, verse 11. The Lord said to the sons of Israel, Did I not deliver you from the Egyptians and the Amorites and the sons of Ammon and the Philistines? Also, when the Sidonians and the Amalekites and the Manites oppressed you, you cried out to me, and I delivered you from their hands. Yet you have forsaken me and served other gods, and therefore I will no longer deliver you. Go and cry out to the gods which you have chosen. Let them deliver you in the time of your distress. Well, now, this is a different outcome, isn't it? And we haven't seen this before, this, this turning back upon them with, with these words of, I'm sorry, but you're not going to get help this time. This is different. Right? What the people want is relief, but the Lord says, not so fast. Speaking through a prophet, we assume, the Lord rebukes the people for chasing idols again. And notice in verses 11 and 12, he reminds them, look, I've delivered you from your enemies in the past. And look at the list. He lists seven adversaries who oppressed them in the past. And in each case, he says, I've rescued you from those people when the time came. You have a list of seven nations that are oppressing the people, with, now creating symmetry with the seven, seven gods that the people are chasing after from verse 6. And that symmetry is intentional. The point here is the Lord is emphasizing to the nation of Israel, you've got short memories. You know, you've been asking here now for me to grant you relief from your circumstances, but your circumstances are the direct result of your choice to make friends with these enemies, and specifically with their gods. If you want the Lord to deliver you from your enemies, then you have to forsake your friendship with those people. It's just that simple. Here's the irony. The irony is the people were maintaining their relationship with their gods even as they cried out to the Lord for relief. Uh, That ain't going to work. That's just regret. 
That's not repentance. That's the repentance a la Esau. You know, the style of repentance that we hear described in, in Hebrews where he is demonstrating regret over his circumstances, but he's not actually willing to change his heart in any meaningful way. So they just continue in their apostasy. So now you know why the Lord says, I'm sorry, I'm not going to deliver you from your circumstances while you continue to have friendship with those nations and with their gods. Bottom line is, you can't fool the Lord. Right? He knows your heart. He knows my heart better than we do in many cases. If we make friends with the world, well then we should expect to see the fruit of that, shouldn't we? The Lord puts us in a vice usually in some way to get the point. And I've seen it a lot of times, friends, brothers and sisters in the Lord who assume that they're doing everything right, or, or so they tell themselves. They have the house. They've got the car. They've got the job. They've got the 2.5 kids. They've got the 401k. They are the archetype successful American family on paper. In a sense, they're just carbon copies of the world. With one addition, right? They go to church on Sunday unless the cowboys are playing early. So they have a pattern that just falls into line with everything around them in the neighborhoods they live in. But they just put a little Christianity on top. And I'm not saying they're not believers. Of course they're believers. The point is, the way they've chosen to walk in their faith is to say, I want it all. I want to look like the world, have all the world offers, and then have all of the benefits of faith. Chasing the world's definition of success instead of seeking the Lord's. And then, inevitably, and this is why I might find myself having a conversation with him, inevitably, there are cracks in the wall. And they begin to show after a while. The rebellious kids, or the the shallow marriage, or the addictions, or the lack of fulfillment, or the emptiness inside, or maybe there's worse things going on. Whatever it is, they're sleeping in the bed they made. I'm saying they are reaping a measure of regret that comes with living like the world. Because, friends, the world is filled with that very same regret. That's what I'm saying. This is the natural consequence of living in a worldly way. And when we share in their ways, we share in their outcomes. And not as some kind of retribution on the part of the Lord. For the most part, it's just the natural consequence of that lifestyle. You cannot architect, we cannot architect our life to match the world and expect a different result. That's the definition of insanity again. You cannot do what the world does and expect that your life will be good when theirs is self-evidently not, just because you know Jesus. That's not how it works. Israel continued to live in rebellion, but they expected that because they knew the Lord, He would just grant relief to them when they cried out, even as they intended to continue living in the way they preferred. And He said to them, no, no. He says, you have chosen to seek refuge in the gods of your neighbors, well then let them deliver you. And of course He knows they're not going to be delivered. Once more, a new generation of Israel now has to wake up to the reality of their situation. Verse 15. The sons of Israel said to the Lord, All right, we have sinned. Do to us whatever seems good to you. Only please deliver us this day. So they put away the foreign gods from among them and served the Lord. And he could bear the misery of Israel no longer. Then the sons of Ammon were summoned and they camped in Gilead. And the sons of Israel gathered together and camped in Mitzvah. The people, the leaders of Gilead, said to one another, Who is the man who will begin to fight against the sons of Ammon? He shall become head over all the inhabitants of Gilead. Well, now we reach step three, right? We move from regret to something deeper. True repentance, something here in which they have agreed with the Lord. They say, we've sinned, we're guilty of what you claim, they don't make any excuses, they say, we'll accept whatever judgment is appropriate, just please give us relief. How do you get to this point in the camp of Israel? You have a nation of at least several million people. All of these people have been involved in idolatrous relationships with the neighboring gods for some time, at least 18 years. And then all of a sudden, they move in unison 
to make this appeal to God. I suspect some in this crowd were probably ready sooner than others, right? There were probably some who were trying to get the repentant hearts in Israel maybe a year or two or five or ten years earlier. Maybe some who never participated, I would hope. But until the nation as a whole came around, the Lord just kept squeezing that vice until finally, in unison, we're told, they make this conclusion that they should turn. It reminds us the Lord isn't interested in partial obedience. In the case of the nation, He worked on the national level. In the case of our own hearts, it's the same, though. He wants the whole heart of His people. And then notice, secondly, there are actions that follow from repentance. Verse 16, they put away their foreign gods. They begin to serve the Lord. Now, we're not saying they put them away in the sense that they stuck them up in the cupboard and they're just going to grab them a little later. Put away here in Hebrew, it literally means sent away, done away with. And then they serve the Lord. What they did is something we call works in keeping with repentance. That's a term you may know from Scripture. Do the works of repentance. That term means that words are cheap. And the road to hell is paved with good intentions, as the saying goes. So if you feel some conviction about how you're living, if the Lord is speaking to someone about how they should change, then you have to make the change for repentance to be a truth in your heart. You can say what you will. You can imagine what you would do. You can acknowledge the need to do it. But until you actually do it, the question of whether you've repented is still on the table. It means doing something differently, not just wanting to do something differently. Changing a life is difficult. But repeating a past mistake is far worse. And then the Lord was ready to rescue them. And then Samuel uses this anthropomorphic description of the Lord. He says, the Lord no longer could bear the misery of the people. That that is not to say that the Lord was at a breaking point. He's simply using human emotion, human ways of seeing things in order to understand why the timing of the Lord was the way it was. He selected his timing to ensure the people were sufficiently motivated to repent and not to turn back again before he took off the throttle before he took off the the pressure and then we hear there's going to be a battle now we don't get into the battle today the Ammonites assemble for a great victory against the Israelites or so they assume gathering in Gilead which is the region that's just on the east side of the Jordan River present day Jordan today just east of Jericho they gather in that region and without some kind of supernatural intervention it's pretty clear at least to the people in Israel that they're going to get mowed over by the Ammonites when they decide to attack so the people all gather on the west side in a place called Gilead and without anyone to lead them they ask who can we have to lead us Look, notice in verse 18 they do not ask the Lord who will lead us they ask one another is there someone amongst us who will lead us years of living with a worldly perspective will continue to weigh on your view These people in Israel, they're still seeking a human solution. They're not appealing to the Lord for a solution here. They're looking to someone amongst them, someone who they can point to who will be a deliverer to take them out of this situation. But they should have been turning to the Lord at this point. They should have been saying to the Lord, now that you are going to rescue us, point us in the right direction. If you would turn away from chasing the world and seek to serve the Lord, then you have to be ready for this moment. This is the moment when the world fights back. This is the moment when family, friends, neighbors, work associates, someone starts to question whether your turn makes sense. And the enemy is going to make this a point of attack early in your turn because he knows that at the moment you turn and move a distance, you're that much less likely to ever come back. And you've seen this. Friends, family, church settings, somewhere in your life who has been that radical person in your point of view. They were sold out for career and family in some way that the world appreciates. And then somewhere along the way, they decided that's not who we are. 
And we're going to live differently from the world, and we're going to seek after things God has put in our path. Some of them became missionaries. Some of them uh, became full-time in church work in one way or another. Some just simply radically altered their budget and their calendar so that their life was ready to serve God and not serve the world. And the people around them did what? Oh, they've gone nuts. They've gone off the deep end. It's that pastor they have. That guy's a kook. Don't listen to him. Stuff of that sort, right? We have to explain it away because it doesn't fit what? It doesn't fit the world. It doesn't fit the pattern we expect. These people say, we're done with the gods of our enemies, and the enemies say, we're going to come into your world, and we're going to force you to be under our control. But they don't seek for the Lord for the strength that, that it takes to hold their course. They look for the, the earthly human solution. Friends, that's the last piece. You've got to have a mindset that says, we are not going to go down this path another time. We're going to turn, and we know it's going to be tough, so we're going to look to the Lord to strengthen us as we get to those points of temptation. He's going to be the one to solve the problems of emptiness and strife and stress. It's not going to be money. It's not going to be possessions. Not more time spent at work. Not another, another drink or another uh, episode of whatever it is we take on. It's going to be seeking the Lord, allowing Him to work, trusting He can pull us through that temptation moment and not letting the world rule us. That's what's drawing down the nation of Israel. When we come back next time, we'll be in chapter 11. Another judge gets raised up. A man who will lead Israel for a time again. But I hate to tell you the end of the story. The cycle comes back. It's not over. But it's happening because of their canonization. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Heavenly Father, I pray, Lord, that we would not be uh, worldly, that we'd be focused on you at all times, and that our hearts would, would not be tempted. But I know, Father, that we will see temptation, and I know we will feel pressure. For many of us, Father, it's simply been the course we've set for our lives for so long now, we don't know how, how we could ever step off it. We, we don't see the alternative. It seems scary and and radical, perhaps even unnecessary. We tell ourselves there's still that marriage possible between a lifestyle of the world and a lifestyle serving you. Father, I pray that for each of our hearts you would uh, begin to work and tell us just where we have uh, made friendship with the world a priority and give us the courage to step out of that. I pray, Father, you would convict us accordingly. And then I pray, Father, you would give us confidence to know that following you will, will... Fill those empty holes in our life, those needs that we think only the world can fill. Give us confidence to know, Father, that whatever you offer is better. Let us not be our own cycle of judges. Let us be an example to the world of who you are. I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.